Dune has been a staple in science fiction since the 1960s. As the sands drift on the desert planet, we'll learn about Frank Herbert, his influences and inspirations for Dune, and the Dune prequels and sequels. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. One of the guides on this journey is author Brian Herbert, who is the son of Frank Herbert, as we learn about the father of Dune. Thanks to Macmillan Audio, here is a sample from the Dune audiobook. Prophecy and prescience. How can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered question? Consider... How much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Muad'Dib referred to his vision image, and how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future, or does he see a line of weakness, a fault, or cleavage that he may shatter with words or decisions, as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with the blow of a knife? Private Reflections on Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. More of Journey to Arrakis in just a moment. More from the audiobook of Dune and then Brian Herbert on Frank Herbert. Get there, water, the man calling out of the night had said. And Paul fought down his fear, glanced at his mother. His trained eyes saw her readiness for battle, the waiting whip-snap of her muscles. "'It would be regrettable should we have to destroy you out of hand,' the voice above them said. "'That's the one who spoke to us first, Jessica thought. "'There are at least two of them, one to our right and one on our left. "'Signoro robosa sucaris in manje la chagavas, doime cavavas, na beslas lele padrobas.' It was the man to their right, calling out across the basin. To Paul, the words were gibberish, but out of her Bene Gesserit training, Jessica recognized the speech. It was Chakobsa, one of the ancient hunting languages, and the man above them was saying that perhaps these were the strangers they sought. In the sudden silence that followed the calling voice, the hoop-wheel face of the second moon, faintly ivory-blue, rolled over the rocks across the basin, bright and peering. Scrambling sounds came from the rocks above and to both sides, dark motions in the moonlight. Many figures flowed through the shadows. A whole troop, Paul thought with a sudden pang. A tall man in a mottled burnoose stepped in front of Jessica. His mouth baffle was thrown aside for clear speech, revealing a heavy beard in the side light of the moon, but face and eyes were hidden in the overhang of his hood. What have we here, gin or human? he asked. When Jessica heard the true banter in his voice, she allowed herself a faint hope. This was the voice of command, the voice that had first shocked them with its intrusion from the night. Human, I warrant, the man said. Jessica sensed rather than saw the knife hidden in a fold of the man's robe. She permitted herself one bitter regret that she and Paul had no shields. "'Do you also speak?' the man asked. 
Jessica put all the royal arrogance at her command into her manner and voice. Reply was urgent, but she had not heard enough of this man to be certain she had a register on his culture and weaknesses. Who comes on us like criminals out of the night? she demanded. The Bernouse hooded head showed tension in a sudden twist, then slow relaxation that revealed much. The man had good control. Paul shifted away from his mother to separate them as targets and give each of them a clearer arena of action. The hooded head turned at Paul's movement, opening a wedge of face to moonlight. Jessica saw a sharp nose, one glinting eye, dark, so dark the eye, without any white in it, a heavy brown and upturned mustache. A likely cub, the man said. If you're fugitives from the Harkonnens, it may be your welcome among us. What is it, boy? The possibilities flashed through Paul's mind. A trick? A fact? Immediate decision was needed. Why should you welcome fugitives? he demanded. A child who thinks and speaks like a man, the tall man said. Well now, to answer your question, my young Wally, I am one who does not pay the fai, the water tribute, to the Harkonnens. That is why I might welcome a fugitive. He knows who we are, Paul thought. There's concealment in his voice. I am Stilgar, the Fremen, the tall man said. Does that speed your tongue, boy? It is the same voice, Paul thought and he remembered the council with this man seeking the body of a friend slain by the Harkonnens. I know you, Stilgar, Paul said. I was with my father in council when you came for the water of your friend. You took away with you my father's man, Duncan Idaho, an exchange of friends. And Idaho abandoned us to return to his duke, Stilgar said. Jessica heard the shading of disgust in his voice, held herself prepared for attack. The voice from the rocks above them called, We waste time here still. This is the Duke's son, Stilgar barked. He's certainly the one Liet told us to seek. But a child still. The Duke was a man and this lad used a thumper, Stilgar said. That was a brave crossing he made in the path of Shai Hulu. And Jessica heard him excluding her from his thoughts. Had he already passed sentence? We haven't time for the test, the voice above them protested. Yet he could be Lisa Nalgaib, Stilgar said. He's looking for an omen, Jessica thought. But the woman, the voice above them said. Jessica readied herself anew. There had been death in that voice. Yes, the woman, Stilgar said. And her water. You know the law, said the voice from the rocks. Ones who cannot live with the desert. Be quiet, Stilgar said. Times change. Did Liet command this? asked the voice from the rocks. You heard the voice of the Cielago, Jamis, Stilgar said. Why do you press me? And Jessica thought, Cielago? The clue of the tongue opened wide avenues of understanding. This was the language of Ilm and Fik, and Cielago meant bat a small flying mammal, voice of the Cielago. They had received a distrans message to seek Paul and herself. I but remind you of your duties, friend Stilgar, said the voice above them. My duty is the strength of the tribe, Stilgar said. That is my only duty. 
I need no one to remind me of it. This child man interests me. He is full-fleshed. He has lived on much water. He has lived away from the father-son. He has not the eyes of the Ibad. Yet he does not speak or act like a weakling of the pans. Nor did his father. How can this be? We cannot stay out here all night arguing, said the voice from the rocks. If a patrol... I will not tell you again, Jamis, to be quiet, Steelgar said. The man above them remained silent, but Jessica heard him moving, crossing by a leap over a defile and working his way down to the basin floor on their left. The voice of the Lago suggested there'd be value to us in saving you two, Stilgar said. I can see possibility in this strong boy man. He is young and can learn. But what of yourself, woman? He stared at Jessica. I have his voice and pattern registered now. Jessica thought, I could control him with a word. But he's a strong man, worth much more to us unblunted and with full freedom of action. We shall see. I am the mother of this boy, Jessica said. In part, his strength which you admire is the product of my training. The strength of a woman can be boundless, Stilgar said. Certain it is in a reverend mother. Are you a reverend mother? For the moment, Jessica put aside the implications of the question, answered truthfully, No. Are you trained in the ways of the desert? No, but many consider my training valuable. We make our own judgments on value, Stilgar said. Every man has the right to his own judgments, she said. It is well that you see the reason, Stilgar said. We cannot dally here to test you, woman. Do you understand? We'd not want your shade to plague us. I will take the boy-man, your son, and he shall have my countenance, sanctuary in my tribe. But for you, woman, you understand there is nothing personal in this? It is the rule, istisla, in the general interest. Is that not enough? Paul took a half-step forward. What are you talking about? Stilgar flicked a glance across Paul but kept his attention on Jessica. Unless you've been deep-trained from childhood to live here, you cannot bring destruction onto an entire tribe. It is the law, and we cannot carry useless— Jessica's motion started as a slumping, deceptive feint to the ground. It was the obvious thing for a weak outworlder to do, and the obvious slows an opponent's reactions— it takes an instant to interpret a known thing when that thing is exposed as something unknown. She shifted as she saw his right shoulder drop to bring a weapon within the folds of his robe to bear on her new position. A turn, a slash of her arm, a whirling of mingled robes, and she was against the rocks with the man helpless in front of her. At his mother's first movement, Paul backed two steps. As she attacked, he dove for shadows. A bearded man rose up in his path, half-crouched, lunging forward with a weapon in one hand. Paul took the man beneath the sternum with a straight-hand jab, sidestepped and chopped the base of his neck, relieving him of the weapon as he fell. Then Paul was into the shadows, scrambling upward among the rocks, the weapon tucked into his waist-sash. He had recognized it in spite of its unfamiliar shape, a projectile weapon, and that said many things about this place another clue that shields were not used here. They will concentrate on my mother and that Stilgar fellow. She can handle him. I must get to a safe vantage point where I can threaten them and give her time to escape. 
There came a chorus of sharp spring clicks from the basin. Projectiles whined off the rocks around him. One of them flicked his robe. He squeezed around a corner in the rocks, found himself in a narrow vertical crack, began inching upward, his back against one side, his feet against the other, slowly, as silently as he could. The roar of Stilgar's voice echoed up to him. Get back, you worm-headed lice! She'll break my neck if you come near! A voice out of the basin said, The boy got away still. What are we... Of course he got away, you sand-brained... Easy woman! Tell them to stop hunting my son, Jessica said. They've stopped, woman. He got away as you intended him to. Great gods below, why didn't you say you were a weirding woman and a fighter? Tell your men to fall back, Jessica said. Tell them to go out into the basin where I can see them, and you'd better believe that I know how many of them there are. And she thought, this is the delicate moment. But if this man is as sharp-minded as I think him, we have a chance. Paul inched his way upward, found a narrow ledge on which he could rest and looked down into the basin. Stilgar's voice came up to him. And if I refuse, how can you... Leave be, woman! We mean no harm to you, now. Great gods, if you can do this to the strongest of us, you're worth ten times your weight of water. Now the test of reason, Jessica thought. She said, You ask after the Lisan al-Gaib. You could be the folk of the legend, he said, but I'll believe that when it's been tested. All I know now is that you came here with that stupid duke who... Ay, woman! I care not if you kill me. He was honourable and brave, but it was stupid to put himself in the way of the Harkonnen fist. Silence. Presently, Jessica said, He had no choice. But we'll not argue it. Now, tell that man of yours behind the bush over there to stop trying to bring his weapon to bear on me, or I'll rid the universe of you and take him next. You there! Stilgar roared. Do as she says! But still... Do as she says, you worm-faced, crawling, sand-brained piece of lizard turd. Do it, or I'll help her dismember you. Can't you see the worth of this woman? The man at the bush straightened from his partial concealment, lowered his weapon. He has obeyed, Stilgar said. Now, Jessica said, explain clearly to your people what it is you wish of me. I want no young hothead to make a foolish mistake. When we slip into the villages and towns, we must mask our origin, blend with the Pan and Graben folk, Stilgar said. We carry no weapons, for the Chris knife is sacred. But you, woman, you have the weirding ability of battle. We'd only heard of it, and many doubted, but one cannot doubt what he sees with his own eyes. You mastered an armed Fremen. This is a weapon no search could expose." There was a stirring in the basin as Stilgar's words sank home. And if I agree to teach you the weirding way? My countenance for you, as well as your son. How can we be sure of the truth in your promise? Stilgar's voice lost some of its subtle undertone of reasoning, took on an edge of bitterness. Out here, woman, we carry no paper for contracts. We make no evening promises to be broken at dawn. When a man says a thing, that's the contract. As leader of my people, I put them in bond to my word. Teach us this weirding way, and you have sanctuary with us as long as you wish. Your water shall mingle with our water. 
Can you speak for all, Fremen? Jessica asked. In time that may be, but only my brother, Liet, speaks for all, Fremen. Here I promise only secrecy. My people will not speak of you to any other, Sietch. The Harkonnens have returned to Dune in force, and your duke is dead. It is said that you two died in a mother storm. The hunter does not seek dead game. There's a safety in that, Jessica thought. But these people have good communications, and a message could be sent. I presume there was a reward offered for us, she said. Stilgar remained silent, and she could almost see the thoughts turning over in his head, sensing the shifts of his muscles beneath her hands. Presently, he said, I will say it once more. I've given the tribe's word bond. My people know your worth to us now. What could the Harkonnens give us? Our freedom? Ha! No, you are the Tokwa, that which buys us more than all the spice in the Harkonnen coffers. Then I shall teach you my way of battle, Jessica said, and she sensed the unconscious ritual intensity of her own words. Now will you release me? So be it, Jessica said. She released her hold on him, stepped aside in full view of the bank in the basin. This is the test mashed, she thought. But Paul must know about them even if I die for his knowledge. In the waiting silence, Paul inched forward to get a better view of where his mother stood. As he moved, he heard heavy breathing suddenly stilled above him in the vertical crack of the rock and sensed a faint shadow there outlined against the stars. Stilgar's voice came up from the basin. You up there! Stop hunting the boy! He'll come down presently! The voice of a young boy or a girl sounded from the darkness above Paul. But still, he can't be far from- I said leave him be, Cheney! You spawn of a lizard! There came a whispered imprecation from above Paul and a low voice. Call me spawn of a lizard! But the shadow pulled back out of view. Paul returned his attention to the basin, picking out the grey-shadowed movement of Stilgar beside his mother. Come in, all of you, Stilgar called. He turned to Jessica. And now I'll ask you how we may be certain you'll fulfil your half of our bargain. You're the ones lived with papers and empty contracts and such as we of the Bene Gesserit. Don't break our vows any more than you do, Jessica said. There was a protracted silence, then a multiple hissing of voices. A Bene Gesserit witch! Paul brought his captured weapon from his sash, trained it on the dark figure of Stilgar, but the man and his companions remained immobile, staring at Jessica. It is the legend, someone said. It was said that the Shadout Mapes gave this report on you, Stilgar said, but a thing so important must be tested. If you are the Bene Gesserit of the legend whose son will lead us to paradise... He shrugged. Jessica sighed, thinking, So, a missionaria protectiva even planted religious safety valves all through this hellhole. Ah well, it'll help, and that's what it was meant to do. She said, The seeress who brought you the legend, she gave it under the binding of Karama and Ijaz, the miracle and the inimitability of the prophecy, this I know. Do you wish a sign? His nostrils flared in the moonlight. We cannot tarry for the rites, he whispered. 
Jessica recalled a chart Kynes had shown her while arranging emergency escape routes. How long ago, it seemed. There had been a place called Siech Tavor on the chart, and beside it the notation, Stilgar. Perhaps when we get to Siech Tabor, she said. The revelation shook him, and Jessica thought, if only he knew the tricks we use. She must have been good, that Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva. These Fremen are beautifully prepared to believe in us. Stilgar shifted uneasily. We must go now. She nodded, letting him know that they left with her permission. He looked up at the cliff almost directly at the rock ledge where Paul crouched. You there, lad. You may come down now. He returned his attention to Jessica, spoke with an apologetic tone. Your son made an incredible amount of noise climbing. He has much to learn lest he endanger us all. But he's young. No doubt we have much to teach each other, Jessica said. Meanwhile, you'd best see to your companion out there. My noisy son was a bit rough in disarming him. Stilgar whirled, his hood flapping. Where? Beyond those bushes, she pointed. Stilgar touched two of his men. See to it. He glanced at his companions, identifying them. Jamis is missing. He turned to Jessica. Even your cub knows the weirding way. And you'll notice that my son hasn't stirred from up there as you ordered, Jessica said. The two men Stilgar had sent returned, supporting a third, who stumbled and gasped between them. Stilgar gave them a flicking glance, returned his attention to Jessica. The son will take only your orders, eh? Good. He knows discipline. Paul, you may come down now, Jessica said. Paul stood up, emerging into moonlight above his concealing cleft, slipped the Fremen weapon back into his sash. As he turned, another figure arose from the rocks to face him. In the moonlight and reflection off grey stone, Paul saw a small figure in Fremen robes, a shadowed face peering out at him from the hood, and the muzzle of one of the projectile weapons aimed at him from a fold of robe. I am Cheney, daughter of Liet. The voice was lilting, half filled with laughter. I would not have permitted you to harm my companions, she said. Paul swallowed. The figure in front of him turned into the moon's path and he saw an elfin face, black pits of eyes. The familiarity of that face, the features out of numberless visions in his earliest prescience, shocked Paul to stillness. He remembered the angry bravado with which he had once described this face from a dream, telling the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, I will meet her. And here was the face but in no meeting he had ever dreamed. "'You were as noisy as Shai Hulud in a rage,' she said, "'and you took the most difficult way up here. "'Follow me. I'll show you an easier way down.' He scrambled out of the cleft, followed the swirling of her robe across a tumbled landscape. She moved like a gazelle, dancing over the rocks. Paul felt hot blood in his face, was thankful for the darkness. "'That girl!' She was like a touch of destiny. He felt caught up on a wave, in tune with a motion that lifted all his spirits. Hola.
what I think is amazing about the work that you both have done is that you have both taken the uh, Dune universe and uh, and built upon what your father has you know has done and really uh, continued it uh, you know continues to keep it fresh and interesting when you think about it it's really been in existence since 1965 and here we are 2006 and the whole saga and the work that you've done it, it still seems as fresh as it was back then well thank you both Kevin and I have said several times and in public a few times that it would be much better if if my father were still alive to write the books either mm. on his own or in collaboration both both of us Kevin and I have done our research we feel like we were ready for this massive project I spent five years writing a, a biography of my dad dreamer of dune and another year doing a concordance of all six of his books so it's, it's an encyclopedic reference work that Kevin and I use so and, and Kevin had done his own research before that and, and both of us read the books many many times so it, it, it's a daunting task and it took two of us to undertake it yeah no doubt about it and I think the you know the work that you've done has just been amazing uh, for hunters and also sandworms um, I understand that uh, you actually and you know Kevin alluded to in our interview that you found like this incredible set of notes and and uh, almost a manuscript for the last uh, dune book that your that your father had uh, written well we didn't find a manuscript we eleven years after my dad died. I received a call from an estate attorney, and the, my dad's estate was complicated. It was still open, and he told me about two safety deposit boxes in a suburb of Seattle, so we went straight over to the bank. It was a Bank of America branch, and opened it with an estate attorney there to inventory the contents, and it, it was full of papers and computer disks, and they were recipes and correspondence and, and various things like that, and then we found... Uh, a printout, about two and a half pages of outline, Mark Dune 7 notes, which was his, his outline. And then there was some additional, maybe 25 more pages of character notes and various setting notes for the Dune universe, kind of pointing us in the right direction in addition to the outline. And so I also found a computer, two computer disks and Mark Dune 7 notes. And one of them had my father's handwriting on it, Mark Dune 7 notes. And we put that on our website. I believe it's still up on DuneNovels.com. Yes. Uh, it was pretty amazing. I, I just, I just, it was two weeks after I'd met Kevin that these notes turned up. And then after that, I, Kevin said, why don't you search your attic and see what's up there? Well, I, I knew there were my father's manuscripts in my attic, but as I went through the boxes up there, I found another thousand plus pages of working notes that my dad had for the whole Dune series. It was kind of amazing. Dad didn't use a computer at that time, and these are all miscellaneous notes that he'd assembled, including some scenes that were unpublished. So it was it was pretty incredible, and it, we felt like there was another force out there guiding us uh, to these things and, and encouraging us to, to work on this project. No, it's great that you were able to take those notes and really use that as a foundation to build upon that world. Right. And, uh, you know, and not only, you know, with the, the, the last, uh, book, which was, as I told Mr. Anderson, was great that you did it. I, doing it in two books seems to make a lot of sense based on the material that you found. Well, my father had set up many story threads. Uh, he'd set up a mystery in, in science fiction form. He'd written a million words in the Dune universe, and Kevin and I wrote an additional million before we... Uh, so, so in order to, to really 
to, to have the grand finale, uh, we had two million words behind us here to, and so I was able, Kevin and I were able to add a lot of story threads building up to this grand climax, and we added those to my father's story threads, and then we, we built on his. So the grand finale is a, is a combination of, of Frank Herbert, Brian Herbert, and, and Kevin, An- Kevin J. Anderson. It, it, the overarching plot is my father's, and, and Kevin and I have added many, many story threads to that. That's awesome. Hunters of Dune is out now, mm-hmm. and then you have Sandworms will be coming out next year. That's right, and, and we're, we're grateful to all the fans who made Hunters of Dune number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. We appreciate it. That's the power of the universe, too, I think. It's just uh, the universe that you, are, you both are playing in very successfully right now. It's a great big sandbox, isn't it? <laughs> It sure is. Literally, in some ways, it really is. But, uh, you know, it is cool, and uh, it's it's great. I mean, especially with uh, the prequel trilogy that you both did, too, uh, you know, on House Carino, House Atreides, uh, that, those were just great, and House, Har- and House uh, Harkonnen, mm-hmm. it allowed you to really, you know, look at those houses and, and give us a really good fleshing out of what happened. Right, and, and then we took the appendix to Dune, uh, mm-hmm. where Dad mentioned the butler and Jihad, and we yes. Another trilogy, ten thousand years. Yeah, it's so much of this universe that you've been able to, you know, to expand upon and really fill in so much. It's been great. Yeah, I know the fans have been been waiting patiently and, and sometimes impatiently for this grand finale. So I'm sorry it took this long. No, I, I think good things are worth waiting for. So uh, <laughs> I, I think they, I don't think they'll be disappointed. I think they'll be really cool to it. Thank you. Uh, you know, for people that don't know your father as far as what was he like as as an actual man you know i mean he was a newspaper man and he tra- he traveled he kind of moved you guys around a lot when you were kids uh, what was that like for you growing up and what was what was he like i i wrote about him extensively in in dreamer dry dreamer yeah yeah and, and there's there's really three big story threads in that biography and one of them is that i didn't get along with him until i was in my 20s the house had to be totally quiet so he could create his masterpiece and and really the I, I have a younger brother and an older sister and it was my perception that the characters that he was creating in his study were children of his imagination and, and basically we were competing with them and I didn't want to read anything that he wrote. In fact I didn't read Dune until I was in my mid twenties. When I was in my uh, mid-20s, my mother got terminal lung cancer, hmm. and my dad did incredible things for her with the, the, the science that was available then. He found every medical procedure, the, the latest medical procedures for her. He became her nurse, her cook. He built, uh, had a house built in Hawaii where she could breathe easier with her lung cancer condition. And at this point, my father and I became very close when I saw the, the loving side to him. I always knew that he loved my mother, but to see him go way beyond the, the, anything I had imagined that he could do uh, really drew us close, and we became best friends, ironically. So that, that's one of the threads in, in writing about him. Um, and he and I wrote the last book that Frank Herbert wrote. We wrote it together. It's called Man of Two Worlds. It's a science fiction novel. And then it's about uh, the love story of my, of my mother and father. My mother had been a writer. In fact, my mom and dad met in a creative writing class at oh, wow. the University of Washington. Mm. Shortly after that, they embarked on their on their adventure of their marriage, and um, she found that somebody had to make a living. <laughs> he he was taking newspaper jobs occasionally, but we, we needed a steady paycheck to pay the bills, and we were pretty poor. So my mom took 
gave up her creative writing career for him. And she became a, an ad writer for department stores and, and other things. And, and so I saw her give make all those sacrifices early in the marriage. And so later when I saw what my dad did for her, it was very appropriate, but it was quite a love story between the two of them. And then, of course, the third thing in the biography of the, the origins of Dune, how, yeah. how my father got these ideas. He'd been a political, uh, well, he grew up in a, in a, in a political atmosphere in a little town called Burley near Tacoma, Washington. And Burley had been a failed socialist community coming out uh, around the turn of the century from the Eugene Debs experiments where Eugene V. Debs uh, set up these various socialist communities around around the country and um, many of them failed and I think I think they virtually all failed and this was one but there was still a political hotbed and so much my dad grew up there he he picked up a lot about politics and later in the 1950s he became a Republican Party political speech writer mm-hmm. um, but he didn't always vote Republican he voted for Adlai Stevenson and, and my dad was basically I asked him well what religious uh, you know what religion do you believe in because we didn't have any organized religion when I grew up in and dad said he was closest to being a Buddhist so here's a Republican uh, who was close <laughs> to being a Buddhist and uh, I saw him lead anti-war marches of University of Washington students where they took over the freeway in Seattle so he was a complex guy and and Dune shows that in particular all the it's a great adventure story and look at all the layers oh yeah that of politics religion oh, yeah. philosophy I mean so he, he was a very deep man and very hard to to get to know customizable podcast playlist exclusive videos special episodes like the mix 100 podcast selected by listener downloads all this and more at sci-fi talk plus Now with over a thousand episodes, uncut, and a special offer for free lifetime access. Now available for a limited time. Click on the link in the show notes. No anonymous signups are allowed. Thanks for listening. More of the journey to Arrakis to follow. This is Tony Tolado.